Today's scripture is from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, and he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails I, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. One week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Do you ever read the Bible, especially the accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels? Do you ever read parts of the Bible and find it hard to believe that everything that happened, that it says happened there, actually happened? If you haven't ever had that trouble, if you have never read a story of a miraculous healing or that multiplying of the loaves and fishes or one of those moments when Jesus seems to know what everyone's thinking before they say it out loud, if you've never had even an inkling of doubt that the resurrection actually happened, then this is not the sermon series for you. I commend you for your bulletproof faith. You can surf on your phone for the next 15 minutes if you want to. I would, though, love to talk to you sometime about how you have managed to escape all doubt, wonderment, questions when it comes to the Holy Scriptures. Because I've certainly had my doubts. I have. And I suspect a great majority of people have. Certainly people outside the church have a lot of doubt if about what we say about Jesus is actually true, if he did and said the things that we say he did and, and said. Especially that whole resurrection thing. And the people inside the church are not immune from doubt at all. So if you have had moments, if you have had moments in reading the Bible or hearing about the teachings of Jesus' life and his, his miraculous deeds, if you have had moments when you thought, really, you are in very good company. And I don't just mean that the people sitting here around you or also online with you have perhaps had doubts. I mean that across time and space, Christian people have had doubts. And sometimes those doubts have taken, especially the doubts about Jesus' miracles, have taken people to kind of extreme places. Several hundred years ago, with the coming of the Enlightenment in the Western world and the development of the scientific method, some people slowly began to read the Bible differently. And eventually this created what in the 19th century came to be called the quest for the historical Jesus. So in this, scholars tried to, they tried to get behind the biblical text. They asked themselves this question, who was Jesus really? And what did he really do? If we had seen him live, what would we have known about him and, and what would he have done? Now, there's a big assumption in even asking that question it's assuming that we can't fully trust the Bible to tell us who Jesus was and what he really did. It's assuming there's a, a layer of storytelling that's on top of who he really was and what he really did. And so it's a project that's fueled by doubt. 
Well, that kind of whole first period was summarized in a book that I actually have by Albert Schweitzer, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, first published in 1906. Now, that kind of, this book is not that old, but 1906 was the original publication. That kind of research, it, it kind of ebbed and flowed uh, until the late 1990s, and there was a moment, I would say that it peaked in the late 1990s with a project called the Jesus Seminar, led by a guy named Dr. Robert Funk. Now, Funk, he gathered a, a whole huge group of, of academics to debate and decide what Jesus of Nazareth actually said and actually did. And they got together and they spent weeks debating every part of the Gospels, and then they voted. They voted. They voted by putting colored balls in a box or colored beads in a box, and they tallied up all the votes for a particular scripture, and every saying of Jesus, every act of Jesus was given a color. Now, the men and the women who did this, they were very smart, very well-educated, very knowledgeable about the ancient world and ancient texts, and they knew a lot about the world Jesus lived in, about how the Bible came to be, and they voted. And so if they put in a red bead, it was something Jesus for sure said and did. A pink bead was probably something like what Jesus would say or do. A gray bead meant they thought Jesus didn't say or do it, but the ideas were kind of close to his own. And a black bead was like, no way, Jesus didn't do this. This is a later tradition or a different perspective. Or as one participant explained it, red meant that's Jesus. Pink meant sure sounds like Jesus. Gray meant, well, maybe, and black meant there's been some mistake. So then they published their findings in three different books. Here's one of them, The Acts of Jesus. And if you look through this, there is hardly a red sentence to be found. One example from the Gospel of John, John especially hardly has any red. Here, you can see on this page, there's a lot of explanation in writing, but here's one little red part. So they're saying, this is for sure Jesus. They crucified him. Okay, so he died. They got that. Uh, another red part here. Some of them said he drives out demons in the name of Beelzebub, the head demon. But the parts above that are gray and pink. So the only part they're certain of is some said. So not, this isn't really even saying what Jesus did, but what other people said about him. So the quest for the historical Jesus. Does it really help us understand who Jesus is? I don't think so. It's interesting. It's something we're talking about. If anybody wants to look at these books, I have them all in my office. Be happy to share them with you. I think it's worth talking about the evidence that the Jesus Seminar and other people found or didn't find for the acts and saying of Jesus. But in the end, I think all that kind of thing really does is give fuel for people who just want to write Jesus off. If you want an excuse to not believe in anything Jesus said or did, if you want a reason to have him not have any impact on your life at all, these guys have written a book to help you not take any of it very seriously. What they've shown us, once again, is that our faith is not built on a pyramid of facts. What I mean is our faith isn't something that can be proven like a mathematical formula. We can't look under a microscope and find something definitive about our faith. We can't measure the distance between the stars. 
and have that solve all of our questions. Faith is not built on facts like that. It's built on experience. Faith is built on experience. Which is exactly what Thomas asked for in today's scripture. He'd heard about Jesus' resurrection, but he wanted to experience it for himself. You know, it's too bad, I think, that he's actually called Doubting Thomas, that he has that negative adjective with his name, because he just wanted to experience the same thing all the other disciples had. He wanted to see the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes. His story comes a week after the resurrection. You might remember in the Gospel of John, Jesus appears in a garden outside the tomb to Mary Magdalene. And he sends her to tell all the other disciples that he's risen from the grave, and she does. Mary goes off that Easter morning and tells the male disciples this amazing news that Jesus is not where they expected him to be, namely dead and in the tomb. And they hear this world-changing news, and they do not go out and tell the world. They don't. They go and they hide. They hang out in a locked room. They're trying to stay safe from those people that crucified and arrested Jesus. But later that evening, that same Easter Sunday day, Jesus appears to the disciples by coming into the locked room. And he shows them his hands and he shows them where he was wounded on the side to prove that it's his body, right? And not just some lookalike. And they rejoice. Well, Thomas, he wasn't there. The gospel writer doesn't tell us where Thomas went. Most biblical commentators like to imagine he was out getting the groceries. Bad timing, right? (laughs) I mean, he's the one guy who's brave enough to go out and get them food so they don't starve, and he misses seeing the risen Christ. So he gets home with dinner, and he's told what happened, and Thomas says, I can't believe it. It's too big. The news is too big for him to swallow. I have to see it for myself, he says. I have to see what you saw, touch what you touched. I want the same experience that you have. That's what he wants to believe in the miracle of resurrection. So what does Jesus do? He shows back up. A week later, a full week later on that next Sunday, Jesus appears. They're still inside the locked room, and Jesus appears again without warning. He speaks those words of peace, and then he gives to Thomas exactly what Thomas asked for. He gets to see the wounds in his hands and the wounds on his side. And Jesus counsels Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas, having received what he needed, he shouts out his confession, my Lord and my God. I find it especially unfair that he gets called doubting Thomas because the word doubt actually doesn't appear in the story. I know the scripture, the NRSV, translated what Jesus says is do not doubt, but believe. But what the Greek says is do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, maybe unbelieving and doubt are the same thing. I don't know for sure. Remember how we talked about last week, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is faith's companion. Rather, the opposite of faith is certainty. So Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, be 100% certain of me. No, he says, believe in me. Maybe we could hear it as trust in me. In the Gospel of John, the word belief is a synonym for having a relationship with Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is, do not be unbelieving, but believe. He's saying, don't cast me aside. Trust in me. Have a relationship with me. Come to me. Have faith in me. 
believe in me. I mean, Thomas, he's not a counterexample of faith. He's not some kind of weak guy that we should pity. I find him to be an important example of faith. He heard other people tell about their encounter with God, with the risen Christ, and instead of taking somebody else's word for it, he wanted the experience for himself. He wanted to meet Jesus. And I think this is actually the point of all the miracle stories. They're an invitation to us. They want us to try to get to meet Jesus for ourselves. So think about how this worked in the actual moment that Jesus was alive. People heard that he could do amazing things. He made the sick well, he made the broken whole. And what happened? People came from all over the place to try and see Jesus. They brought their troubles to him. They brought their pain to him. They came to listen to him. Those miracles, they were just an invitation to check out who Jesus was. Now, did Jesus go around and heal every sick person in Israel? No, he did not do that. Does God heal every sick person today? No, God does not do that. Why not? I refer you back to last week's sermon about suffering, okay? The miracle stories of Jesus, they're an invitation, an invitation for us to get to know God better. Who is this guy who says that he can turn, who who can turn water into wine? Who is this guy that can cure people of a fever with just a touch? Now, are, are those stories true? Did they happen like the Bible says? Did Jesus feed 5,000 people with two loaves and two fish? There's another tradition in biblical scholarship, dates back several hundred years, where people try to make miracles make sense to our modern mind. Maybe you've read some things like this. They try to say things like, well, the way the loaves and fishes happened is that when it says people had no food in that big crowd, it didn't really mean they didn't have any food. I mean, that would have been ridiculous for people to go out to hear somebody preach and not bring lunch with them. So, of course, they they had some food. And when they saw that little boy give up his bread and his fish, they were inspired. And so they started to share their own lunch. And they gave to their neighbors all through the crowd so that eventually everyone had enough to eat and everyone was full. It wasn't something supernatural. It was just everyone sharing. Does that make it easier to read, easier to believe, easier to believe in Jesus? That doesn't really help me. It's a nice idea, everybody's sharing their lunch, but it contradicts the Bible pretty clearly. The Bible wants us to see that Jesus can feed people who are hungry. He can do it all by himself. So we maybe want to explain away the miracles We have to make some big assumptions to do that. We have to contradict the biblical text to do that. And I just think we don't quite have enough information to make sense of it the way we would want to because the people who first saw Jesus in the ancient world, they didn't ask questions the way we ask questions. Same for the people who wrote down the stories in the Bible. Same for the people who read those stories for like 1,600 years. They didn't ask questions the way we ask questions. They had a very different idea about how the world works. They didn't use the scientific method. They didn't test hypotheses. They didn't care about something being replicated in order to be proven true. You guys, they didn't know how gravity works. They didn't know about viruses and bacteria. They didn't know what quarks are. Okay, I don't really know what quarks are either, but that's beside the point. So the people who wrote the Bible, 
they knew so much less about how the world works, which means they reported these miraculous events differently than we would if we were writing the story. Does it mean what they said isn't true? No. Because for all we know about the world, there is so much we don't know. We are still experiencing medical and scientific miracles all the time. Things that we never thought could happen are happening, like CRISPR. Have you guys heard about this? The gene editing tool? Google it, because I am not smart enough to explain it to you. Or COVID vaccines, using something called mRNA. I never learned about that in high school or college biology, because no one was working on it when I was in high school and it's now saved us from a pandemic. So we are always learning, always growing. And to say the miracles of Jesus are just impossible, that would mean to be certain of something that I don't think we can be certain of. Finally, I think it's important for us to remember that the, all the miracle stories in the Bible, the miracle stories of Jesus, they're, they're actually stories about who Jesus is and not stories about the way the world works. The point is not explaining the world. The point is explaining who Jesus is. So they're not stories about who got really lucky or how you can convince God to give you healing. They're not stories about who loved God more or who God loves more. They're stories about who Jesus is. They're stories to show us that Jesus is God and that God can do whatever God wants to do with the world, supernatural or natural. God has sovereign power over the world. God is almighty. Now, do we have absolute proof of that? No. That's where our faith comes in. Faith is what gets us from unbelief to belief. I love this story that Fred Craddock tells about being in Israel, in Jerusalem, and having a Jewish man explain the Christmas story to him. <clears throat> Craddock says, he explained this to me when we were standing in shepherd's field. So thinking about shepherds, he said, some of you may know what I'm talking about if you've been to Israel. There's a field down in the lower part where there once were tents. Now I think there's a housing development, nothing sacred anymore. Craddock says, on a clear night, if you stand down there, look toward the city of Bethlehem, you look up and there's a bright star. And it looks like it's standing right over the houses. And so the man standing there in shepherd's field, he said, that's what happens at Christmas. So he's talking about shepherds and a star, and Craddock reminds us he was mixing up Matthew and Luke. He was not really an expert in all this. And he explained that this is how people got confused and thought there was a star over the house where Jesus was. So when he finished this long explanation, Craddock said, well, that's one way to look at it. And then the man said something very interesting. He said, I know that's just one way to look at it. When I was in school, the rabbi explained everything in the Bible two different ways. When he would come to a miracle, he would explain it in two different ways. And his reason was this. If something happens and you can't explain it another way, then God didn't do it. And Craddock concludes, this, this is not bad. God doesn't paint you into a corner and say, now you weasel, you don't have a choice. So the weasel will say, I don't have a choice, I believe. We do have a choice. When we hear a miracle story, we have plenty of choices about how we're gonna fit them into our faith. Will they point us toward the power of God Almighty? Will they help us understand who Jesus was? Will they serve as an invitation to meet Jesus for ourselves? 
My challenge for you this week is to take a moment to sit down with the Bible. Go back through, just pick one of the Gospels, any one you want. If you want to pick the shortest one, it's Mark, okay? Pick any Gospel, go back through it and read and look for the miracle stories. And ask yourself, as you read those stories, ask yourself, what is this story telling me about Jesus? What is it showing me he cares about? What is he paying attention to? Just make some notes and see what is revealed. If we look at the story of Thomas and ask those kind of questions, we can say that Jesus cares about people not missing out on the chance to see him alive. So maybe that can prompt us to ask to see Jesus in the world this week. We could pray, God help me see Jesus in a fresh way this week. I think that's a prayer God will honor with something miraculous or something lovely or something comforting. In both the unspectacular and the spectacular, God will show up when we ask. May it be so. Amen.